thank you for your donation to Corbono, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the study of Scripture according to the mind of the Catholic Church. If you like this talk, we invite you to share our website, www.corbono.com, with others so that together we may participate in the evangelization of the third millennium. Our speaker, Najim Awad, lives in San Diego, California with his wife and seven children and has been studying and teaching scripture since 1995. Najib believes the Catholic Church holds and teaches the fullness of truth, and with his tremendous zeal and insight, he is able to communicate that raw truth without sugarcoating the teachings of the Catholic Church. He also believes that our job is not to change the truth, but to communicate it clearly and directly to others. And now, here's Najib. Tonight we are going backward to chapters 19 through 21, and uh, hmm, I have about 27 pages of notes, and I don't know if I'm going to be able to cover all of them in, but I think I structured it in such a way that I'm going to be able to make the most important points first, and I'll see if I can get to the last or later points. Here are what we're going to try and cover tonight, and we'll see how well we fare. First, we're going to talk about the nature of the covenant, the covenant of Sinai, because this is the content of these chapters, moving forward into actually chapters 22, 23, and 24. But it starts here at 19. The second is the preparation for the, so we're going to talk about the nature of the covenant, what a covenant is, what's its nature, how does it compare to other covenants of the time. Then we're going to talk about how God prepared his people for that covenant. And then we're going to talk about the content of the covenant, or the Decalogue as it's known. Then we're going to move into some of the liturgical rules surrounding the application of the covenant. Then I hope to cover the introduction to a section starting in chapter 21 through 24 called the Book of the Covenant. I'm going to repeat all those one more time. So if you're not able to, um, if you're taking notes, I'm going to repeat them again. So, introduction to the Book of the Covenant, and then the last thing is the judicial rulings, which is the first section of that Book of the Covenant. So, again, what is the nature of the covenant? Preparation. What preparation did the people of God had to go through for receiving the covenant? What is the content? What are the rules of the liturgy around it? Then we're going to talk about in, of the, book, the introduction to the Book of the Covenant itself, and then judicial rulings. All right. Keep in mind that this covenant was given before the golden calf. Now, we saw what happened during the golden calf and how uh, horrendous the, the, the episode of the golden calf was. That is important to keep in mind because as this passage was being penned down, written, the events of the golden calf were already known. So it is taking that into consideration. Had we read it before the golden calf, you won't pick up on some of the statements made here and wondering, well, how did they say that? And why did they say that sort of stuff? So, let's talk about the nature of this covenant. First of all, the biblical word for it is berit. And the Christian designation of testament is a good representation for what a berit is. 
A testament, unfortunately, has lost some of its meaning because we don't use it that often today to represent, if you will, a written record or a compact detailing an agreement between two parties. In the ancient world, relationships were governed between, uh, were governed by these treaties or covenants, and these relationships covered relationships between individuals as well as between states. And there are many, many examples of these covenants in the ancient world. And they fall into, under two uh, types. There is the parity treaty, parity, P-A-R-I-T-Y, parity treaty, where the, part, the, the parties are on equal footing. And um, they essentially negotiation happens as equal. And then there is the suzerain vassal treaty, suzerain, S-U-Z-E-R. R-A-I-N, suzerain, where the suzerain is the ruler and the vassal is the servant. In which case, one party imposes its will on the other. So when, let's say, um, a conquering general um, is handed the keys of a city, he becomes the suzerain and the ruler of the city becomes the vassal of that general. And then they can negotiate a covenant. It is not a covenant between equals. The general imposes his law upon the vassal. And if the vassal lives by these laws, then the general will bless the vassal, the city, by making that city part of his kingdom and giving these people essentially citizenship into the, the kingdom. If they don't, he will come and utterly destroy the whole city as a lesson to others. That is a very well-known phenomenon in ancient, um, uh, in ancient history. It happened all the time. It will happen to, Bab to Jerusalem twice. Twice will Jerusalem be utterly destroyed because of these reasons. When you study these documents, and you see their structure, you will see that the actual structure of the Decalogue, as given on Mount Sinai, follow that of the Suzerain Vassal Treaty. So, when reading it, they knew that God was the Suzerain, and He is the one establishing the covenant, and they, as the vassal, Israel, as a nation, as a vassal, were to obey that. How would they recognize it? I'm going to show it to you. It's really easy. How many of you have installed software on your machines, on your computers? How many of you through the process of installing a piece of software? Just raise your hands. Okay. You know when you get to that point and there is this legal notice that says the user, right, you will agree. You, you, okay. You, if you saw that out, outside the context of a legal agreement, outside the context of installing, you'd recognize it for what it is, right? Okay. How many of you have dealt with a mortgage. Okay, if I showed you something looked like a mortgage from another state, wouldn't you recognize it? You would. It has a flavor. It has a structure, a style that is very different, say, than uh, an article in a newspaper or a blog or what have you, right? Well, likewise, if you've seen these covenants time and time again, you'd immediately recognize the structure. Because we don't have covenants these days, right? We have a hard time recognizing the structure in the scripture. 
But the typical form of the covenant is as follows. First, there is an introduction of the strong party. When, it, when, it, when it's a covenant between a, a suzerain and a vassal, the structure is always the same. There's an introduction of the strong party and a summary of his achievements. Second, there is the binding covenant. This is what you're going to do. Third, there are the blessings attached to the covenant. If you do those things, this is what's going to happen to you. And fourth, there are the curses associated with the covenant. If you don't, that stuff is going to happen to you. By the way, any parent who talked to a kid uses that exact same structure. I'm your dad, and I'm telling you, you're going to do this. And if you don't do this, that's what's going to happen to you. But if you do this, that other thing will happen to you. Do you get it? Yeah? Yeah. That's it. That's exactly what's going on here. How does the covenant start? I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other God before me. You get, you get that? Okay. I took you out of Egypt and brought you here. There is a, a re, God is reminding them of everything He did for them. Remember everything I did for you? Right? Okay. I'm your dad. You live in this house. You got food and, and clothing and a room because I am paying all of that stuff. So you better listen to me. Huh? Yeah. Same thing. Okay. You want to know how you live in this house? I'm going to tell you how you live in this house. These are the rules. You follow them. Don't ever disrespect your mother or else. That sort of thing. Right? So a good dad makes things very clear, black and white, simple, and efficient, effective, and painful when they need to be painful. That's how it is. There are those who try the parody model. Right? I'm going to be your friend. Well, say that to a kid and then watch who's the boss. You know that. The kid is the boss. And then disasters ensue and then we end up in big trouble. Right? So, that's exactly what God is doing. This is, this is in a nutshell, if you keep that in mind when we read this covenant, God is acting as a father. Israel is the child. That's one of the models that's followed here. The other is the marital model. Is the marital model. He's the husband. Israel is the wife. He's not there to lord over Israel and beat his wife. He's there to die for his wife. That's what God is going to do. He's laying down his life for her. But nevertheless, he is the one who gives life to Israel. Therefore, he is the one who sets the conditions of the covenant and establishes the, the rules that they must follow. All right. Now, if you look at the content of the covenant and you look at other documents out there, you will see that there are many commonalities. So, there are many other collections of laws in the ancient world that have ethical and moral principles of justice and morality. This is not unique to the Bible. 
It's not unique to the Bible. So, for instance, uh, sins of a moral ethical nature, for instance, bearing false witness, disrespect of parents, theft, adultery, murder, are all listed in the following documents. The magic texts from Mesopotamia known as the Shurpu series, the Declaration of Innocence located in chapter 125 of the Egyptian Book of the Dead, is formulated in negative terms and clearly testifies to the reality of positive moral ideals. So both in the Mesopotamia and in Egypt, as well as most of the great civilizations in the Nile and Mesopotamia, all had commitment to a set of ethical and ideals of principles and morality. So when the covenant is couched out, it's also couched into a language, in a language that the Israelites were familiar with. And God is not about to come up with something original in the structure of the text. He's going to borrow from what they know in order to properly communicate to them the truth he wishes to communicate to, to them. Having said that, there are things that are absolutely unique about the covenant that you find in Scripture. First of all, the idea of a covenantal relationship between God and an entire people is unparalleled. We don't find other texts where a God establishes a covenant with his people and says, you're mine, I'm yours, and it's exclusive. Not the Greeks, not the Egyptians, not the Mesopotamians, not the Phoenicians, not the Romans, nowhere. Only here is this exclusive relationship established this way. Also, the fact that the covenant is set in a narrative context. By this I mean that the covenant is set after God took them out of Egypt into Sinai and before the golden calf. This context is absolutely essential for the proper understanding of the covenant. So it isn't some sort of a formal text set out without any context around it. It is cast in a historical reality the the way the Israelites were living in Sinai. And therefore indicates that in, in, in God's eyes, it was extremely important to address His people in the context in which they were living. Not as a completely remote God who gives a bunch of laws that have nothing to do with their reality. Okay. When, you, when you see the derived laws that follow later in chapter 21 through 24, they're not complete. God is not going, going to give them a systematic um, legal corpus by which they're going to live. He's going to touch upon certain points that are important in the context in which they live. Because God is not going to give them a bunch of laws and then take off and leave them. He's going to stay with them. Just as when you are going out for a dinner... You and your wife, you ask a babysitter to come over. And you go talk to your kids. Now, when you're talking to your kids, you're not going to sit them down and explain to them how they behave in this house and what are all the rules that they must obey, do you? You only talk to them about what they're supposed to do when the babysitter is here. Right? It's very contextual. Why? Because you're not going away. You're coming back hopefully a couple of hours from now. Exactly the same thing. So you have critics who would say, well, look, this text is incomplete. These laws you can find in Mesopotamia. You can find in the, law, in the code um, of law of Hammurabi. You can find otherwise. Therefore, all they did here is copy. No, they're getting this all wrong. 
because they have a very legalistic approach to Scripture, thinking that we need to look at it as a legal text. And they miss the point. The fact that you as parents tell your kids, you've got to behave when the babysitter is here, and that these words you're saying are pretty much the same that 200,000 other parents are going to say, right? They're not original. They're the same words. Does not mean you are not good parents. And does not mean that perhaps you're not saints. You understand? Commonality does not imply lack of authenticity. It's the other way around. The fact that God speaks with common language indicates something about His nature and His intent to relate to us in ways we understand. I've told you many times, Scripture is not a book that that encodes all the truths about God. It's a book that speaks of God's love to us. It's like a diary about how your father dealt with you. If your father were to sit down or somebody were to chronicle how your father acted towards you throughout life, you'd get something similar to Scripture. It's not a full account about what your father believed, what he studied, what he knew, how much he was able to perform at his job. None of that will be there. A lot of it will not be there. What is there is how did he act with you. You understand? That's Scripture. That's why the knowledge in Scripture is always truncated. It's never complete. And the presence of the Holy Spirit in the church continues to take what is in Scripture and make it present for us, to give it its full meaning for us. You understand? Another important element is um, that the covenant isn't just about how the vassal, in this case Israel, must behave towards God. It's not just about when you come and you talk to me, you're going to do those things. It's not about an interface. It actually regulates the life of Israel on a day-to-day basis. And that was absolutely unique in all the covenants that were written back then. Most other covenants would say, I don't care what you do inside your city. That's not my problem. All I care is you pay your taxes. you You don't plot with my enemies to go against me. And when I ask you to go fight my war, you send your guys. Once you do those things, the rest of it is fine. I'm fine. But that's not how God acts. Why? Because the model of a king and a vassal simply is not tight enough. You have to use the model of a father and a kid. Or a husband and a wife. It's an interpersonal relationship couched in covenantal terms. That's what's going on here. It's an interpersonal relationship couched in covenantal terms that speaks of God's involvement in the lives of Israel. The lives of the Israelites. Another important element is that um, the, the statement of the, of the covenant are apodictic. By apodictic we mean self-evident. There is no justification given to them. In other texts, you will find moral justification given why you should act this way or that way. Here, none of that. They're supposed to be absolutely self-evident. No explanation is given. And that's why we do call it the natural law. 
the natural law, not to be confused with the laws of nature. The natural law is the law inscribed in every human heart that God puts in our soul when we are created. And it's shared by all uh, humanity. All right. So these are some of the outstanding features of the Decalogue. Let's look at the preparation for the covenant. What had to happen? In verse 5, chapter 19, he speaks of Israel as my own possession, my treasured possession. The Hebrew word for that is segula, which like its Akkadian um, equivalent, sikiltum, uh, originally denoted valued property to which one has an exclusive right of possession. It is the part of the, the property that is most closely um, associated with the owner. This is the thing that the owner most, uh, that is most important to the owner. You know, for instance, the, I don't know, the jewelry or the thing that the, somebody really, really cares about. That's the segula. And that term was used in many covenants to indicate this particular relationship. So, for instance, a royal seal of uh, Aban, of Alaka, designates its owner as the sikiltum of the god, his servant and beloved. A letter from the Hittite sovereign to the king of Ugarit characterizes his vassal as his servant and sigulat, treasured possession. Okay? Treasured possession. I want to attract your attention to one thing that is very important here. Um, any one of you who, who understands the consecration to Mary would know that that is precisely the relationship one enters when one is consecrated to Mary. You become her treasured possession. Right? Her treasured possession. So that notion of treasured possession is very interesting because it indicates that when, especially for men, when they enter in a relationship of consecrate, consecration to Mary, they're not equal. You're not on equal term with Mary. You're not negotiating as equals. Right? She is the suzerain, you're the vassal. Right? That's why St. Maximilian Kolbe speaks of us being an object in the hands of Mary. St. Louis de Montfort speaks of those consecrated to Mary as slaves of Mary. They use very strong terms to indicate the inequality in relationship. The other important element that I want to attract your attention to, and I'm not going to have time to ex- expand too much on it, is this concept of chivalry. The fundamental concept of chivalry as it existed was precisely that, that a man, when bowing before a woman made her right, the suzerain, and he became her vassal. He was there to do her bidding. And that's a very powerful notion, both for a man and a woman. And effectively, what I would say is that in a couple, a man's heart is to, what is in a man's heart, is to elevate his wife, to make her a queen. That is what is in his heart. If he is, if his conscience is formed according to um, the, um, uh, the, in, the intent of God, his, his, his happiness comes from elevating her and making her a queen. So the, the, the drama that we're living in, the tragedy that we live in in these modern times is this notion of equality. When women demand equality, they are fundamentally demeaning themselves. I'm not talking about equality in, in the public out there. I'm not talking about equal rights. Right? That is an absolute given. No, no debate there. But that has nothing to do with marital relationship. This has to do with the dignity of human being. The right to vote. Right to work. Right to um, equal pay for equal salary. All those rights are a given. I'm not talking about that. 
What I'm saying to you is that even in a relationship, a marital relationship, the, uh, we introduce these concepts of equality into the marital relationship, the marital relationship will suffer. It is not meant to be a relationship of equality. It is meant to be a relationship of service, of glorification. And when a woman is working in and working in and bringing money, especially if she's making more than her husband, the, the, the relationship between man and woman is completely tainted and really, really hard to maintain. That's why more and more marriage these days end up being the, huh, the juxtaposition of two solitudes without communion, right? So, and it's, it goes hand in hand. You will see that the attack on marriage is, it goes hand in hand with the weakening of the true devotion to Mary. Because the true devotion to Mary preserves the, the, the um, uniqueness of a married, marital relationship. Especially for men. Especially for men. Men need to be devoted to Our Lady because this is how they learn about femininity from the one who is the most feminine. She's the perfect example. And women should be devoted to St. Joseph. Because through him, they learn about masculinity the right way. Right? The right way. Because uh, St. Joseph is the perfect servant. The perfect servant. So, I wanted to point out that this is what God had in mind when he speaks to Israel. My own possession, my treasured possession. What are they going to do, his treasured possession? What are they going to do a little later? The golden calf. See, this is the poignancy of it all. If you know that this is coming, you read these texts, you shake your head wondering, what happened? What happened? And God all along knew. He knew. He's like a father talking to a kid, and he knows his kid is on drugs. And he's speaking these words. He's speaking these words. So, I hope you see the love of Jesus shining through all of this. Because it's not God the Father only that you should uh, imagine. It's also the Lord. This is the love of the Lord being expressed in these laws. All right. Verse 6, And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That is precisely the calling of Israel, to be a kingdom of priests. A kingdom of priests. Therefore, Israel is a liturgical kingdom. Because when you have priests, you have sacrifice. And you can't have sacrifice without the liturgy. That is what is foremost in God's mind. There was supposed to be a kingdom of priests. And they wanted to be a kingdom like all the other kingdoms. They wanted the secular power instead of the liturgical power. And we commit the same sin. So many of us think that the solution to our problems is found in politics. So many of us tend to be politician first, then religious. But he's telling them, you are going to be a kingdom of priests. And why? What is the purpose of being a kingdom of priests? The priest in the community is set apart by a distinctive way of life, 
consecrated to the service of God and dedicated to ministering to the needs of the people. Consecrated to the service of God and ministering to the needs of the people. This is what a priest does in the community. By the same token, or by extension, if the community is a kingdom of priests, the whole community is a kingdom of priests, what is the role of that community? Well, Israel is set apart to the service of God and dedicated to ministering to the needs of the nations. The needs of the nations. What is Israel? Israel is God's firstborn. This is who Jacob is. God's firstborn. And as a firstborn, the role of Israel, therefore, is to do what? To minister to the needs of the nations. And so, therefore, what is, who is Israel today? Is it the state of Israel in the Middle East? No. Who is Israel today? The Catholic Church is Israel. What is the role of Israel, the Catholic Church? The service of God and ministering to the needs of the nations. For what purpose? To bring the obedience of faith to all nations. That's what the church, what is the purpose of the church. And what I'm saying the purpose of the church, guess what? It's the purpose of all your lives. This is why you're here. This is why you've been called into the Catholic Church. So, if in your lives you are not ministering to the needs of the people by prayer, sacrifice, fasting, by your example, if you are not influencing others around you, then heed the words of St. James. Faith without works is dead. You're like dead branches. And how often did Jesus warn about dead branches? What will happen to them? They'll be cut off and burned outside in the unquenchable fire. If in your work if in your environment at work you allow people around you to use the name of the Lord in vain and do not gently ask them to stop in your presence, how are you being an influence to others? If by your control of your passions and your growth in virtue, you're not able to influence others to work for the common good, how are you being a witness for Christ? You don't have to preach. You don't have to pronounce the name Jesus. You don't have to hold the Bible. You don't have to do any of that. It is your behavior that must shine forth as an example that people will want to imitate, even if they don't know you're Catholic. If you're not doing that, how are you being a member of the church, a living member of the church. You understand the world is divided into two. There are two kinds of people. There are those who are alive, alive, meaning those who live in a state of grace. Those are the living. And then there are the zombies. 
the living dead, those who live in a state of mortal sin, they are spiritually dead. They're living, this is what the world is. The world is, the, the, the reality of the world is far more horrifying than any horror movie you can ever see. Horrifying, not in the sense of blood-curdling scare, but when you think about the destiny of so many destined to hell forever and ever, that truth should hit you in the forehead, and you should ask yourself this question, what am I doing? And if you're not asking this question, if you're not thinking about those things, you're tepid, you're indifferent. There is no middle ground in the truth of Christ. There is no way for me to say it nicely and to be sensitive about how I'm going to tell you. This is it. There is no other way. This is Advent. Are you preparing yourself for the coming of Christ? Verse 8. All that the Lord has spoken we will do. That is the proper response of a vassal to the suzerain. Whatever you said, we will do. Okay. Where do you think this is coming from? Can you think of somebody who might say this to you? In the same way? So, yeah, our children will do that. Yes, mom. Yes, dad. Whatever you say, we will do. No problem. Right? That's the answer. Maybe it is because of fear. Maybe it is because of lack of interest. Who knows? Maybe they're not even paying attention. But that's what they said shortly before the golden calf. We kind of do the same thing in Mass. I'll give you an example. Go to Mass priest says, the Lord is with you. What do you answer? Okay. Do you really mean that? Do you really mean that right now I am praying to God that He may be with you? Or, right? Ping pong. Ping pong. The Lord is with you and also with you. Whatever God said, we will do. Sure. Ping pong. Yeah? You know, in the Latin rite, there is a confite, or at the very beginning of Mass. What does it say? I confess to God, right? And then towards the end we say, and I, um, and I ask the Blessed Mary, ever-Virgin, all the angels and saints, and you, my brothers and sisters, to... Yeah. When you say those words, do you pray for them? Hmm. Ping pong. You see that? I can give you so many examples. 
just the way we behave during the liturgy. That alone is sufficient to indicate that we are like them. Whatever God said, we will do. Sure. Lord is with you and also with you. Why is that coming from? Where is that coming from? I mean, you can tell so much. So much. You can tell so much by the way someone answers the priest when he says, the Lord be with you. So much. Just by that one word. You can tell so much about their vices, their virtues, where they are in the spiritual life, just by that one answer. If you're attentive, so much can be read in it. Vanity, impatience, pride, right? versus piety, humility, love. So much in that one sentence. There was a group of people who were once asked the following question. What is your favorite food? And around the table, you got the typical answers. You know, a burger, a steak, um, orange chicken, pizza. And on and on, everybody reminisced about their favorite food. And then the person asking this question looked at them and said, the proper answer should have been the Eucharist. People sometimes wonder, why should we fast before going to Mass? And how? You know, what is it? Is it an hour before Mass? Or is it an hour before receiving communion? Right? Oh, look at that. I got 30 more seconds. I can just eat that piece of chocolate right now. Ping pong. What is that? It's a legalistic approach to the faith. Why do we have to fast before going to Mass? Could you tell me that? Why, do, why does the church require us to fast before we go to Mass? Why? I'll give you why. I'm going to tell you why. It's not that difficult. We think there's some mystery behind it. There isn't. Well, give us time. True, but it's a very basic thing. If you knew, if you knew, if you knew that tomorrow at noon, you're invited to a scrumptious meal, the best meal you're ever going to have, what do you do? Do you stuff yourself in the morning? That's it. The whole purpose is that you're receiving, you're receiving food. The whole intention of Mother Church is to gently tell us, this is the food of angels. This is the best there is. Don't stuff yourself before you come over here, because when you do that, you miss completely the point. So if you truly love the Lord, you would ignore the one hour before Mass. You would not eat and you would not drink anything before Mass. Because you're doing it out of love. Not because the church says, another one of those check things you have to do. Unless you want to be a car wash Catholic. Take your car to the car wash. Make sure it's washed. You know, automatically. You go in. Everything is done. And you just go home. You're done. Car wash Catholic. Come to the church. Do these things. Check, 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 check. I did it. Everything is cool. 
Miss the point. You understand? Okay. I am a living God, says the Lord. I am alive. Don't treat me like I'm dead. Most of the time, that's what we do. The Lord is with you and also with you. Yeah. Christmas is coming. What do we do? Like the pagans. We don't fast. We don't make anything difficult on us. We're just busy buying gifts, getting stressed over it. We forget it is Jesus' birthday. Right? And please, oh yeah, that's the one thing I wanted to tell you. Um, there's a beautiful tradition that we have in our church, and maybe the Chaldeans have it also, maybe all the Eastern rites, I don't know, which is that after Christmas, the day after Christmas, we call it the salutation. The felicitation. The felicitation of the Blessed Virgin. We go to Mass and bring flowers to say to Mary, congratulations on having a baby. Okay? If you don't have that as part of your tradition, make it part of your tradition. Because that shows you have a living relationship with her. You're treating her not like a statue or Santa Claus' first assistant. You're treating her like a mom. All right? So, buy yourself a a, a, a bouquet of flowers and bring it to the church, go to Mass and give it to her to say congratulations. Yeah? That's what I'm talking about. The faith must be alive in your heart. What are you doing? Is Jesus part of the conversation or is he left out? Here we go. The covenant was something to regulate their lives, to make them holy. Everything we said, everything God said, we will do. Next thing you know, the golden calf. It's the same thing about us. Exactly the same thing. No different. Beware that. Now, when God came down, something really important happened because Mount Sinai was divided into three parts, which is similar to the, to the tabernacle with the tripartite division. The summit corresponds to the inner sanctum or Holy of Holies. The second zone, partway up the mountain, is the equivalent of the tabernacle's outer sanctum or holy place. And the third zone at the foot of the mountain is analogous to the outer court. And this is what happened. Three parts. And just as Moses alone may ascend to the peak of the mountain, so no one else is allowed to enter the Holy of Holies or before the tabernacle. Just as the holy place is exclusive preserve of the priesthood, only the priests and elders are allowed to go to the middle zone. And finally, the lay folks are in the outer court of the tabernacle where the altar of burnt offering was located. Now, today, the church still have or should have in its architecture these three parts. Here, you see it. You have the tabernacle way back. That would be the Holy of Holies. Then you have the sanctuary, which is the preserve of the priests. And then you have the main body of the church, which is that of the lady. The difference is that the Holy of Holies is not covered. It's not sealed. It is visible. Jesus is available to us. right? But there is something important about the altar. Is that This is where the words of consecration are spoken and heaven and earth meet. This is where the cloud takes place. And it's important for us to remind ourselves, we here live on earth. We are on earth. And up there is where heaven and earth meet. And therefore, when we enter the church, we are invited to receive the Eucharist. That's why normally the priest should not leave the sanctuary when he's giving you the when he's um, um, giving the people the, the Eucharist. He should stay on in the sanctuary, and we should not go up to the sanctuary 
because it is a falsification of the truth of this world. There's nothing theologically wrong with it. I'm not talking about theology. I'm talking about, um, uh, I'm, I'm talking about pastoral needs of the people to understand and live the faith. Right? That's why you heard me um, raise concerns about the way they give communion in the Latin rite these days on both species because it's confusing people tremendously. Because people think if, I, if they don't receive on both species, I'm, I'm missing something. And they say, actually, the body and the blood. So it's ingrained in the people's mind, I'm receiving the body here and the blood over there. There's so many pastoral issues with this kind of reception that, to me, is really problematic. I really recommend that if you go to Latin Rite Mass, do not receive under both species. Don't do that. Stay under one. It is for your own preservation of your faith in the Eucharist. It's much, much better. And if you can, don't receive in the hands, on the tongue. Don't do those sorts of things because it is going against the practice of the faith. You learn more with your body than with words. Always remember that. So it is not going to help you deepen your faith when you do those things. It's going to confuse you, if anything. So just don't do them. Right? And besides, the preferred way of the Catholic uh, Latin rite is kneeling on the tongue. This is still the preferred way for good reasons. Okay? So... God, even in the physical manifestation, is teaching Israel about the reality of heaven and earth. And that he, through the liturgy, is creating a midway point where the two are going to meet. Not in the old liturgy, in the new. All right. Now, the Decalogue, the actual um, text of the covenant. It is known in English as the Ten Commandments, and that's derived from the traditional, although inaccurate, English rendering of the Hebrew phrase, Aseret Hadevarim, that appears in Exodus 34.28 and Deuteronomy 4.13 and 10.4. First of all, commandment does not appear in the text. Second, the Hebrew text rather means the ten words, not commandments. And so, when the Septuagint, the, the Jewish the Jews who, 70 Jews who reportedly went to Alexandria and translated scripture from Hebrew into Greek, when they translated that, they followed a literal translation into Greek, Decalogoi, from which you get Decalogue, which is the more appropriate way of speaking, the ten words of God. Furthermore, there aren't th- ten commandments, really there are 13, depending on how you s- split them. All right. Now, it is written on tablets of stone, and it's two, two stone tablets written back and forth. There's a lot of debate over what was written on where. Now, historically, for historical reasons, have been depicted as five on one and five on the other. Right? But we don't think this is accurate because from a Hebrew perspective, you'd end up with a real grave, what is considered a grave imbalance, because you'd end up with about 146 word Hebrew words on one and 26 on the other. Instead, traditionally, it was mostly thought that the Hebrew, the, the Decalogue was written, duplicated on both. So each tablet had the full Decalogue on it. Two copies. And the reason is because when the covenant was written, there were two copies made. One for the suzerain and the other for the vessel. Both had a copy. And both would take these copies and put them into their temples. In this case, God is not going to keep a copy. So Moses takes both. 
took place in the temple. One on God's behalf, because it's God's temple, and the other on the people's behalf, because it's the temple that people use to adore God. You, you see what I'm saying? That's why there were two tablets. Okay. Now, uh, writing on, on tablets were, was a well-known fact of ancient times. A treaty between the Hittite king uh, Shupi Lilu Limas and king Mati Matiwaza of Mitanni in Upper Mesopotamia noted that each of the contracting parties deposited a copy in his respective temple before the shrine of the deity. So Ramses II with the Hittite king Hatsulisis concluded a treaty around the year 1269 BC and the clauses were inscribed on a tablet of silver which was placed at the feet of the god. In Rome, two treaties in Latin Fodera were written on tablets of bronze and stored in the capital. So writing on tablets of uh, silver, bronze, gold was a known thing to do, not stone. And I, said, I told you why stone, because God wishes to write the law on our hearts, as he will say later to the prophet, I, wanted, I, I will take your hearts of stone and give you hearts of flesh and inscribe my law in your heart. But right now the heart is so hardened, it's made of stone, that he writes it on stone. The Decalogue is divided into two, two parts, two distinct groups. The first governs the relations between God and the individual Israelite, and the second regulates human relationships. So the first group is characterized by the fivefold use of the phrase, the Lord your God. The second contains no reference to Him. Um, the, the document opens with the Lord your God and closes with your neighbor. So part of it is for relationship with God, and part of it is for relationship with others, which effectively is a summary. This is why Jesus said, when, when he asked uh, uh, one of the men around him, what is the most important law? He said, you shall love God and your neighbor, and this is, this is all the law. Well, that's why. Because part of the law is about God, love of God, and the other part is about love of neighbor. Right? That's exactly why uh, Jesus said it this way. Verse 1, I am the Lord your God. So, this means, I am the Lord your God individually for each one of you, and I am the Lord your God for all of you, corporately. So, both. There is no choice of individual within the group to say, oh, I'm going to pick some other God, and it just concerns me. It doesn't concern anybody else. I'm not hurting anybody. No, 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 no. You pick another God, you're hurting the whole community. You'll be, you'll be thrown out. As simple as that. Okay, so it is, I am Lord your God for all of you and individually. Interestingly, in rabbinic legend, the Decalogue was offered by God to all other peoples of the earth, but it was rejected by them. And furthermore, they believed that it was simultaneously translated in all languages. The whole notion is that they believed that the law was universal. It applied to all. God was not trying to be the, the exclusive God of Israel. They understood that he was talking to Israel, but he wished to talk to all. all right? You shall have no other gods before me. The interesting thing is that in the Hebrew, there is no to have. You can't say, I want to have. The, the only way you can say it is uh, to be to, to belong to. So he's saying, you will not belong to another guy, God other than me. You can't belong to a separate God. He uses marital relationship to talk about that. Whereas here, when you say you shall not have, we think of, oh, I got a couple of statues. 
Right? One is for St. Joseph and St. Francis, and maybe have Santa Claus in the middle. Right? No, you will not enter a relationship with any other God but me. He's not saying there are no other gods but me. He's saying you shall not have another God. What does he imply by that? He doesn't mean that there is anything out there. There is also a God. There isn't. But he is telling us how to behave. How to behave towards him. Okay? When you tell the kid, okay, listen to me. You're not telling the kid he can't listen to anybody else. You're saying you are going to listen to me. There's an exclusive relationship here. Because I'm your dad. And you better listen. All right? That's what's going on here. And that required two things. You, when he says, you shall not have another God before me, he means this. You are not going to worship another God. That's one. Two, you are not going to worship me falsely. You can't worship another God, and you can't worship me falsely. How do you worship God falsely? Vanity, money, possessions. Vanity, money, possessions, yes. That's one way. How else? Car wash Catholic. Or, you know, I'll pick and choose. Cafeteria Catholic. Right? I'll follow this law of the church, not that law of the church. I'll contracept, but I'll do this. Or I'll have an abortion, and I'll give money to the church. That's worshiping God falsely. Can't do that. It's just as bad, one or the other. All right. No, that's not true. God does not always forgive, because if God did always forgive, there would be nobody in hell. Right? No. That you have to strike out of anybody's mind. Somebody thinks exactly as you say. Somebody thinks God always forgive, as you said, is, for, is worshipping God falsely. That's a very good point you're bringing. Yeah. Yeah. I just give money. I'm paying my dues. Right? I'll lie. I'll talk about people. I'll do this with their, their back. God always forgive. But I'm giving money to the church. I'm good standing. I'm a good guy. Yeah, good luck with that. Absolutely. This is a very good example. I really thank you for giving, bringing it up. It is not true God always forgives, right? You all see that? Yeah? Yeah. Because again, if God did always forgive, there'd be nobody in hell. Hell would be empty. Right? But we know this is not the case. This is not the case. So let's not kid ourselves in thinking that God always forgives willy-nilly. No. To the repentant heart, if you repent, what is repent? You stop doing what you're doing and you do something else, which is according to God's law. Now, God is going to forgive. And then, if you repent, if you fall a hundred times and repent a hundred times, God will forgive. Right? So we talked about people who have addictions, right? Those people who are addicted to a bunch of different behaviors, Addicted to pornography, addicted to masturbation, addicted to alcoholism, addicted to gambling. They're addicted. And many of them hate their lives. And many of them would wish they could not do any of that. They could stop. Right? They really, truly want to stop. They are unable to stop. 
There is, there is a repentant heart. They're working in it. As long as they come and say, Lord, I'm sorry, God will forgive. As long as they say, God, I'm sorry, even if they do it right after, God will forgive. As long as their heart intention is pure, they wish they could stop, and they're still unable to, God will forgive. But if they do it and they don't care, and they're happy to do it, God is not going to forgive. God is not a fool. You understand the difference? Yeah? Make sense? It's a sense of justice for us too. Right? Why should I, why should I not forgive my kid when he is being uh, stubborn? Should I forgive him? Is that the right thing to do for him? He's disrespecting my wife. Should I forgive my kid because he's disrespecting my wife? Oh, it's okay. You don't have to worry about it. We're friends. Would you do that? You see, God is, is known by the family. When you behave this way, you know, what would you expect God to do otherwise? You understand? That is a huge heresy. Oh, God always forgive. Everybody, somebody dies, he's straight up to heaven. We're canonizing. Nobody goes to hell. Okay. You shall not make for yourself a graven image. Now, this is a big one that uh, really um, uh, throws Catholics off. Well, when Protestants show them the Bible, because most Catholics don't read the Bible, right? So it's to their shock and dismay, they discover this in the Scripture for the first time. In fact, this is the first time probably they open Scripture. And the good Protestant says right here, God said in the commandments, you will not make graven image. How come you have statues in your church? How many of you can answer this, by the way? Okay, good. Three, four, five. Very good. All right. What is the principle of interpretation of Scripture? What does the church teaches us? Scripture must be... No, no. Interpreted in light of all of Scripture. Scripture must be interpreted in light of all of Scripture. Said differently, text taken out of context is a pretext. So when they come and they wave this one text at you out of context, they're throwing dust in your eyes. And you're, you're blinded because you can't think of all of Scripture. Is that what God's saying? Don't have a statue of St. Francis? Don't have a statue of Our Lady? Okay, how do we reconcile the two, though? Okay, yeah. What about the statue of Jesus? What it represents, yes. Yes. See, this is a good argument you're making, but it's a little, little weak because it does not refer to Scripture, right? But what if I told you... Yes, Fadi? Right? So, chapter 35. When he commands them to build the tabernacle, what did he require that they build on top of the tabernacle? Something called the mercy seat. And what's behind the mercy seat? Statues of two seraphim. 
Seraphim, statues. God himself makes statues of seraphim. Don't make any statues. Make statues of seraphim. Schizophrenic God. You understand? So, this is how you turn around. You say, okay, explain that to me. How come he's making statue of seraphim right here? And it's his time to choke, and because he's never read that passage either. The reading of the scripture is so tunnel vision. They have like 32 verses memorized, and that's about it. Gasp! Why is God making statues? Well, it's in the context. Think of your kid. Think of your kid. You're going out. The babysitter is there. Right? What does the kid say? I'm hungry. Now he's hungry. He wasn't hungry half an hour ago. Now you're about to leave. he's hungry. So what do you tell the kid? Do you say don't eat anything? Do you say that? What do you say? Pardon? Yes. What do you tell the babysitter then? Feed him what? Okay. Let me make it easy for you. Do you say to the babysitter, he can have three pounds of sugar and 22 candies? You say that? Okay. What do you say? He can have a piece of cheese and meat, a sandwich, but don't give him candies. Right? Okay. In this case, you're saying don't eat candies because the kid is hungry. You don't want him to eat. Are you saying never eat candy in your entire life? No. That's the problem. They read this thing completely out of context, and they absolutize the whole thing. As if the context didn't matter. Text out of context is pretext. All that God is saying, remember the golden calf? That's why he's saying it. It's coming. He knows these people are hooked on Egyptian gods. He just told them, you're not going to have another God before me. Why? Because they do. They hooked. They're hooked on Egypt. It's like you're telling a bunch of Catholics who every Sunday travel to um, Vegas. Every Sunday. After Mass, they go to Vegas. You're telling them, you shall not gamble. Why are you telling that group of Catholics, you shall not gamble? Isn't it absolute to every... No, it's in this context, I don't want you... Now, obviously, the Decalogue has universal appeal. It's broader. But the immediate context is the Egyptian gods and the golden calf that is coming down the pike very soon. He's not saying, don't have a statue of my mother because she inspires you to true faith. Don't have a statue of St. Francis because you might imitate his virtues. Don't have a statue of St. Anthony to wish that you could hold me as a baby the way he held me. He's not saying don't have the things that lead you to me. He's saying don't have those things that take you away from me. So tonight when you go home, walk in every room of your house, in every room of your house, beginning with your living room. If I go to your house and you invite me there and I get into your house and there isn't something that tells me this is a Catholic home, you're living a pagan life. I don't care what you do otherwise. You hear what I'm saying to you? Walk through your entire house, and if there's things which there should not be there because they take your kids and yourselves from God, throw them away. If you're a family that sit and eat and the TV is on, you might think about throwing the TV away because this is your God. 
Do you understand what I'm saying to you? You have to have a godly house. Otherwise, how are you living your faith? That's what God is saying in a nutshell. Okay? Because he says, I'm a jealous God. This is a marital relationship. He's saying, we are married, and you're not going to go about gallivanting with somebody else. You're mine. And that's it. When you do that, see what's going to happen to you. He says this to us today. Each and every one of us. No different. So, be aware of where you are with God. What is the most important thing for you? If in your free time, if when you're mass, you'd rather be at work. If when you're at mass, you'd rather be at Hawaii on a beach. If when you're at mass, you'd rather be somewhere else. If that's what's in your heart, if that's the desire of your heart, guess what's going to happen to you the day you die? You're going to be somewhere where there is no mass. God respects your desire. He doesn't impose himself on you. You don't want to be with him in heaven? He's not going to force you there. If you don't love the church, devoted to the church, if you don't respect your priest, if you do not uh, yell and complain about your priest, if you, if you really treat your priest as another person of Jesus Christ, regardless of all the problems your priest may have, if you can do those things, you think Jesus is going to say, come, you, you know, well, uh, beloved of my father, enter the kingdom reserved for you from, good luck with that. Try it. See what happens. We are not ministers of justice. We're sinners. Okay? If there is something in your parish you don't like, get on your knees, fast, pray, and let him deal with it. In his good time. But don't disrespect the priest. All right. Now, he says, I'll visit. The, the, the punishment will be down to the third and fourth generation. Third and fourth generation. Meaning, what you do, what you do, affects your children, your grandchildren, and their children. Did you understand what I'm saying to you? And you see it today. You have a man who's an alcoholic. What happens to the kids? They're messed up. What happens to their kids? They're messed up. It keeps on going down and down. You take a, a girl who lives in a, divor- in a house that is divorced. She has seven chances. Seven, her, her, the, the, her chances of divorcing are seven times higher than a girl that lives in a house where there is no divorce. What is that? Physical ailments are communicated genetically. Psychological ailments are communicated genetically. Spiritual ailments are communicated All of that flows down. So I do recommend, if you've not done that yet, inform yourselves about healing of the family tree. Okay? Healing of the family tree. Uh, there is a priest who came here. He's a wonderful priest who gave a wonderful uh, talk on healing of the family tree. You right now may be suffering from things that your parents did, your grandparents did, your great-grandparents did. And you're not even aware of it. So you need to ask the, the blood of Jesus to come upon you, upon your entire family, to heal the wounds that, that come down as a re- result of sins committed by your parents, your grandparents, and your great-grandparents. And to help you stop 
their communication down the generations. Because the blood of Jesus can do that, as promised by Ezekiel and Isaiah. Right? That's what Jesus, God says. I'm going to visit down to the fourth generation. But on those who love me, he will visit the blessings down to the thousand. What is the thousand generation? Forever. As long as the family is faithful to God, those blessings will continue. Even if they do nothing, even if they themselves don't try to be holy, but they're just living according to God's law, the fact that up there somewhere an ancestor was a saint, the blessings keep on flowing. Mercy, justice. Fourth generation, thousand generation. God is indeed bountiful in mercy. Yeah? Okay. He establishes the Sabbath as a day of rest for everyone, strangers and Israelites. No distinction. Everyone must rest on the Sabbath. And today, this is still true of Sunday. God expects you to rest on Sunday. This is part of the commandment. You should rest on Sunday. That means enjoy your family, enjoy friends. Extend acts of mercy to those around you. Be available. Not stuck on Twitter. Be available to others. Be available to your friends, to those who would like to come and visit you. Be available to your children. Celebrate the day of the Lord. Rest. Let your anxieties be at the door. Leave them out on Sunday. You shall not commit adultery. Now, that's so really interesting. I don't have a lot of time to go through this. The couple of things I'm going to say is that when God told them you should not commit adultery, back then, the society admitted, admitted polygamy, but not polyandry. Polygamy is one man, multiple wives. Polyandry is one wife, multiple men. So, I told you it is laws given in context. God is not about to tell them the perfect law. Is God happy with Polygamy? No. How do we know that? From the conversation Jesus had with Pharisees. Well, why did Moses allow us to have a divorce? And Jesus answered right away, because of the hardness of your heart. Translation. If Moses didn't allow you to divorce your wives, you'd kill them. You would kill them. That's why he allowed divorce. It was done because it's a concession to the hardness of your heart. But that's not perfection. Perfection is monogamy. One man, one woman. That's perfection. And it's only found in the Catholic Church and the Orthodox Church. And that's it. Some Baptist church will have it but in pockets. But fundamentally, this is where you find it. No divorce. So it's temporal. So in time and in space. You can't have two at the same time. And you can't have two one after the other. One for one. Until death. Right? And this is impossible to live in a fruitful and loving way without the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit that makes the marital relationship one which grows and is fruitful and gets better and better. Not because we're perfect, we're imperfect, we're sinners, but the Holy Spirit takes us and transforms us and helps us to grow into this relationship and a loving relationship throughout the, the years. Something the world cannot even begin to understand. Because all the world sees is the human level. 
And today you hear of these things. Uh, what is it called? These the one of the new fad. Uh, uh, negotiated, uh, yeah, no, 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 no. It's a negotiated affairs. Pardon? No, 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 no. Negotiated affairs. They're married, but they're going to negotiate having an affair. Oh, that, that's it. This open marriage deal, right? It's okay. We're married, but we can have other things going on because. After all, we're living now to be 70 and 80 years. And who can possibly live together for this long? And they're right. Humanly speaking, it's impossible. You're asking too much. It's too hard. But it's the Holy Spirit that makes it possible. Therefore, your marriage, if you've been faithful and you're growing in your marriage, it is a true miracle. And the church honors that. It is a miracle as long as you're growing, not sitting side by side just waiting for the other to die. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about growth in marriage. Where you look at your marital life today and you think, boy, this is way better than when we started. That's what you want to hear. And you know what? There is no too late. If you have issues with your marriage today, if you have a sense that you're growing apart, get on your knees fast. Ask the Lord and be humble and be willing to go to counseling and work through the issues, and God will bring you back together. There is no too late. Because the Holy Spirit is ever the same, always present, always ready. All right. So I'm going to skip on a bunch of things. Obviously, I don't have time to cover all of them. Um, The thing I will say is... That after the the commandments are given, he, God, speaks of social rules. He gives them social rules about worship. And the interesting thing about the worship, he basically says, when you come to worship me, you you must be dressed appropriately. You must be dressed appropriately. And the reason why he's saying that is because in many other religions, the officiating priest who would go up to the altar of God during the ceremony would be naked. Because nakedness back then was connected with magical rituals and the, 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 the cycle of birth and death and a bunch of other things. You'd be completely naked. So he's basically saying you're not going to do that like they do with the pagans. But the extension of it is that when we go to Mass, we need to be appropriately dressed. So think of wedding. Think of a great celebration. And come dressed appropriately. If you show up with your flip-flops and your jeans, if you show up with low cuts and short skirts, okay, you got the wrong idea about the whole thing. That speaks volume of where you are in your faith. Okay, I don't need anything else. I know a lot about you just because, by the way, you walk in the church and how you're dressed. It speaks volume. Dress appropriately. Dress appropriately. That is very important. God cares about your dress code. He notes it. All right. I don't have time to go through the Book of the Covenant. I'll try and cover it last next next uh, when we resume on the third. It's going to be a real challenge. Believe me. We'll see how well we do because there's four chapters to go through. Fundamentally, to, to summarize what we said, 
God invited them, gave them three days to clean themselves up. This is a three days of reflection because he wanted to make sure that when they say, we do, they mean it. So it was not a, a knee-jerk reaction when I said, whatever God said, we will do. They had three days to think about it. They were not supposed to have sexual relationship because God wanted them to be uh, in control of their passions. He needed them to be in control of their passions. He needed them to think. It's a retreat, fundamentally, for them to come and say, whatever you say, we will do. And they came, and God came, and the mountain was filled with smoke, earthquake, and loud blast, loud trumpet. And God spoke, and then Moses spoke, because they could not hear the word of God. It was too scary for them. So Moses spoke. He was the intermediary. And God gave them the, the commands. Those commandments, he gave to them. Those commandments are commandments of holiness. Live by those commands, you'll become holy. But back then, grace was not given. God gave them the goal, the commandments. He didn't give them the means to reach it. Grace. Why didn't he give them grace? Pardon? Not they have to prove, but you're close. No. Yeah, but why didn't he give it to them right away? Yeah, why didn't he give it to them right away? Pardon? Yes, he hadn't died, but why was grace not given right away? No, it's a very simple answer. You know your kid... Let's go back to your kid. Always go back to kids. It helps you. Your kid needs um, needs a piano because the kid is talented in music. Piano is an expensive instrument. Would you give the kid a piano right away? What are you What are you waiting for? Okay. Meaning he has to ask. You want him to ask. He wants to go see a movie. What do you expect him to do? Would you expect him to just steal your money and run to the theater? What do you expect? Please. Thank you. Right? Ask properly. Show Reverence, show respect, show he understands his limits, he knows who you are. Wouldn't you expect that? Why would you think God would ask for anything less? God is waiting for them to ask. Instead, what did they say? Everything God said, we will do. What does that mean? Superman is in town. We can do it ourselves. We need no help. We're ready. Do you understand? And oftentimes we act the same. We can do it on our own. We need no help. So God withhold the graces He wished to give us. Because we can do it. Right? We just told Him we can do it. How do we tell Him we can do it? We don't trust in Him. We don't entrust our affairs to Him, especially the ones that scares us. Especially when it comes to having children. We're too scared. How am I able to feed the kid? How are the kids going to go to school? How's he going to pay to university? We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Corbono. For more information about this and other talks, 
please visit our website at www.carbono.com. Thank you and God bless you.